Thank you, Eric. Good morning, church. Um, good morning. My name is Picky. I'm going to read the scripture today. So, uh, Psalm 19, to the... Um, uh, to, the, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, none are their works. Whose voice is not heard, their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent of the, for the sun, which comes out like bridegroom, leaving his chamber, like a strong man run its course with joy. It raising is from the end of the heavens, and it circuits to the ends of them, and there is nothing hidden from his head. The law of the law is perfect, revealing the soul, the testimony of the law is sure. Making wise the samples, the precepts of the law are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the law is pure, and lightens the eyes. The fear of the law is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the law are true, the righteous altogether. More to be desired are the are they gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, and deepens of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his error? Declare me innocent from hidden foes. Keep back your servants also from the presumptions sins. Let them not have dominions over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Let the words of mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptance in your sight of law, O law, my rock and my redeemer. Thank you. Thank you, Picky. Good morning, everyone. All right, so I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but we have a big anniversary coming up. Did anyone know that? This year, in 2024, the Bridge Church turns 15 years old. That's impressive, huh? Yeah, 15 years that God has been sustaining this church. And I don't know the exact date of the first Sunday that the bridge met, but I've seen some old emails that make it seem like it was sometime in February or March. And as we get closer, we'll share more of the story of how that happened and and how God started this church to be a blessing to this neighborhood. But we wanna celebrate, because that's a big deal. Like God has kept this church going for 15 years. And so we are planning, uh, we're looking at February 4th as the date. You can pencil that in and then we'll confirm once everything is set on having a special 15th anniversary celebration service with a potluck lunch afterwards, February 4th, to celebrate God's faithfulness to us as a church over the past 15 years. And as far as I know, no one who is here at the bridge now was here at the very start 15 years ago. We have some visitors today who are here very close to the start 15 years ago. I think they were here in the first year or two. Is that right, Matt? Yeah, Uh, but I don't think anyone who's here right now was here on that first Sunday 15 years ago. But whether you've been here, whether this is your first Sunday here at the bridge or whether you've been here for 10 plus years, I think it's definitely worth us just stopping 
to celebrate God's faithfulness to this church. Like there are people here in Tongchong, maybe probably here in this room right now, who are following Jesus today who wouldn't be following Jesus if God hadn't maintained this church over the years. There are people that the bridge has sent out to all different parts of the world who are seeking to love their neighbors and live in a way that's a blessing to the people around them and to follow Jesus and are doing that because of the ways that God worked in their lives during their time here at the bridge. God's faithfulness to the bridge church over the years is having a real impact on our world today, not just in Tongchong and Hong Kong, but lots and lots of different places around the world. And of course, God's faithfulness didn't start 15 years ago when the bridge was started. It's, it's been going on forever and ever. But for the next few weeks, as we get ready to celebrate our 15th anniversary, we wanted to just stop and take some time to reflect on and remember God's faithfulness. And one of the books of the Bible that talks about God's faithfulness a lot is the book of Psalms, which is a collection of the songs of ancient Israel. So we're calling this series Songs of God's Faithfulness. And today we're gonna start by seeing that God is faithful because he reveals himself to us. God is faithful because he reveals himself to us. You know, if I were to get up here and, and ask you like, what proof would you point to if you wanted to convince someone that God really is faithful? I don't know how many of us would have said like, he shows himself to us, lets us know that he exists. I think we maybe just can tend to take that for granted. But as we'll see today, this, this fact that God reveals himself to us and lets us know who he is, it's foundational for us understanding his faithfulness because God showing us who he is allows us to know that he's faithful in the first place. And it gives us a perspective for being able to see that faithfulness at work in so many other parts of life. So today we're gonna to look at Psalm chapter 19 and we're gonna see that God demonstrates his faithfulness by revealing himself to us. God demonstrates his faithfulness by revealing himself to us. And we'll see revelation through nature, revelation through scripture, and revelation of salvation. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is faithful. We thank you that you have been faithful to your people throughout history, but we also thankful for the ways that you've been faithful we're thankful for the ways that you've been faithful to the Bridge Church these past 15 years. That you've sustained us and brought us through hard times like protests and COVID and that we're still here today able to worship you and serve you together. And we pray that you would continue to bless this church and use us as a blessing in many, many years to come. We pray for our time together today as we look at your faithfulness in revealing yourself to us, that we would be able to understand more clearly who you are and, and what your faithfulness means for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So in Psalm chapter 19, it's written by King David. If you were here a few months ago, we looked at King David and different relationships from his life. It's the same guy that we were looking at back then. And we see in this Psalm that God reveals himself to us in, in multiple different ways. The first way that we see that David talks about here is that God reveals himself in nature. David says that that the sky, that's what it means when it says the heavens declare the glory of God. It's, it's talking about just the sky. The sky around us is sending out a constant declaration of the fact that there is a God and this God is powerful. And this message, it's being sent out in a variety of ways to every corner of human existence. 
He says in verse two that, that this message is being sent out constantly, day by day, night by night, every moment of every day, every moment of every night. The universe around us is shouting out to us that God exists. If you missed the message yesterday, you can hear it again today because it's still going out. If you're too busy to realize it today during the day, you can hear it again tonight because it's constantly, constantly going out. And it's not just that it's constantly going out, but it's abundant. In verse two, it talks about how day to day pours out speech. The picture here is a fountain that's just gushing out water. You can't hold back the water. It's, it's, even if you try to put stuff in front of it, the water just finds a way out because there's so much of it pouring out. You can't stop it. There's a large, huge amount of, of messaging going out continually from the universe that God exists. Everything around us constantly is shouting out loudly that God exists. And this message, it's universal. In verse three, it says, there's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Now, just to clarify, depending on your translation, it may translate this verse a little bit differently. And some of it might appear on the surface like it's saying contradictory things, but it's not. Because the idea being conveyed here is that the message creation tells us about God existing is a message that comes without using words. It's nonverbal. And because it comes without using words, it transcends every language and dialect in all of humanity. Everyone can understand it regardless of the language that they speak. So you could say like my translation, which is the ESV if you're curious, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard because the language of creation speaks to people of every language. Or you could say like the NIV or the New American Standard that no sound is heard from them because it's a communication that happens without words, without sounds. But exactly because it's a communication made without words, the message goes out to everyone, everywhere, regardless of where they live, regardless of the language they speak. Every single person who has ever lived on this planet or whoever will live on this planet lives in a world that's continually shouting to them the fact that there is a God who deserves their honor. That's what David is saying here. And I realize I've just made a lot of big claims, all of them coming straight from this passage, but some people might have problems with some of the claims that I'm making right here. Like Eric, how can you claim that nature is so obviously and constantly bearing witness to God when so many people, so many really smart people in our world just don't see it. Right? One of those really smart people who doesn't see it is Stephen Hawking. He said this, before we understand science, it's natural to believe that God created the universe. But now science offers a more convincing explanation. There isn't a God. I'm an atheist. He's saying, sure, you know, if, if you don't understand science, then, then maybe you need God to explain why everything exists. But once you have science, you don't need God anymore. You realize there never was a God there in the first place. And there are lots of really smart people besides him who share this view. So that raises some really important questions for us. Like if the evidence for God is really out there everywhere, 
Why are there so many people in our world, maybe including you, who just can't see it? And then the second question, what type of evidence for God's existence actually is out there in nature for us to see? So we're going to look at that first question first. If evidence for God really is everywhere out there, why are there so many people, so many really smart people who can't see it? And to help us answer this, I have three pictures I want to share with you. Here's the first picture. Now, can, can anyone tell me what number is on the screen right now? 74, that is right. My guess is most of us can read this number, but there might be some people here who can't. And the reason is because, as you probably know, this is a color blindness test. And so most people are born able to distinguish between the pinkish orange, whatever that is, and the bluish green. But if you're colorblind, you can't see the difference. It just all looks the same color, and you can't see the 74 in this picture. There's something wrong with the eyes of colorblind people that doesn't allow them to properly interpret what they see up there. And the Bible says that every single one of us is born with something that's, that's essentially similar to a spiritual colorblindness. Did you know that? The Bible calls this thing sin. And sin isn't just bad things we do. It's a perspective on life and the world that wants everything to revolve around us, not God. It wants the, the world to operate our way, not God's way. And when we live with this perspective, which all of us are born with, it distorts the way that we see and interact with everything in life. Just like colorblindness makes some people look at this picture and just completely be unable to see it and understand what it's saying, sin makes all of us unable to see many of the ways that God's working in our world and communicating with us. These, these sinful and selfish desires, they permeate every part of our lives. So even when we're trying our best to see God working in our world and to see where he's at work in nature, we're on some level working with faulty tools, which keeps us from being able to see clearly. And that, that impact of sin, it's present in your life to some degree or other, whether you're a Christian or not. It's something that keeps all of us from being able to see God clearly like we're meant to. So that's the first reason that we struggle to see God clearly in nature is that we're working with faulty equipment. But there's more reasons that we struggle to see him. Here's our second photo. What's she doing? She's, she's intentionally covering her eyes, right? Now, if someone's trying to show you something, it can be right directly in front of you, big and clear and easy to see. But if you cover your eyes, you're never going to see it. We said in the last photo that because of sin pervading into every part of our lives, it, it keeps us from seeing God clearly, even when we try to see him clearly. But there's another reality about sin. And that is sometimes sin makes us just not want to see that God is there. Because if I truly see that God's there, if I truly understand that he's real, if I truly know that he's at work in the world, then that has implications for my life that might be uncomfortable. I don't want have to have to live my life with an awareness of God's reality because I want to live life my way, not God's way. 
There's an author named Aldous Huxley. He wrote the book, Brave New World. I don't know if you guys have heard of him, but, but he said that this is how he lived his life. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. And consequently, I assumed that it had none. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. There was one admirably simple method of justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning, whatever. So what he's saying here is essentially, I want to sleep with whoever I want, whenever I want. If God is real, then the world has meaning. I can't do that. So I'm just going to close my eyes. Any evidence that could point to God being real, I'm going to close my eyes, pretend it doesn't exist, and then I can feel good about living my life my way because nothing matters anyway. He wanted to live his life one way, so he closed his eyes, covered them up to any evidence that God exists. And like him, there are plenty of people in our world today who choose to just cover their eyes to any evidence that God exists so they can keep living life their own way. If, we wanna, if there are things that we want in our lives that stand opposed to how God tells us to live, this can be a very tempting thing for us to do. But if you do this, let me warn you, it's a dangerous way to live. Because if God is real, if God is shouting out to us day after day that he is real, then one day you're gonna be accountable to him for how you've li- lived your life. And constantly ignoring him and closing your eyes to his reality is a very dangerous way to live. So we've seen, we struggle to see God because we're working with faulty equipment. We struggle to see God because sometimes we just don't want to see God. And then here's our third picture. Does anyone know what this is? Now, this is, are you ready for it? A map of the world. Anyone see it? We have one person who sees it. This is something called a 3D magic eye picture. And I realize it's probably more difficult to see on on the big screen up in front of the room. It's probably easier if you download this picture at your house and look at it on an iPad. But if you've never seen these before, you have to look at them in a specific way. You have to focus at a certain point in it. And when you do that, the picture pops out in 3D from the background. It's a weird thing that somehow works with the way that our eyes are designed. But what does this have to do with us struggling to hear God's messages in nature? Well, the reality is until you learn the proper way of looking at this type of picture, this picture can be right in front of you, staring at you all day long, and you won't ever see it. But once you've learned how to look at the picture, it pops out at you and becomes clear. And this thing that was mysterious all along all of a sudden is right there in front of you. And in the same way, some of us just need training on how to look at nature to see God at work there, to see the evidence that he's real. So we have these three things that keep us from seeing God's evidence for God in nature. We're looking with faulty equipment that sometimes leaves us blind. We sometimes cover our eyes because we don't want to see him. And we need training on how to look and what to look for. So that's our answer to the first question. Why can so many people not see evidence for God in nature? For our second question, what type of evidence is there in nature that God actually exists? And the answer is all sorts all over the place. For one thing, the fact that anything exists at all in the first place 
is evidence for God. Like if you walk up to this music stand and you see that there's an iPad on it, what are you going to assume about how the iPad got there? You're going to assume someone or something put it there, right? Because iPads don't just materialize on music stands in the middle of a school auditorium, right? The idea that an iPad could just form and materialize here seems a bit absurd to us. And that's true for every part of our everyday experience. If we see something just lying somewhere, we know that someone or something put it there. And I know we looked at the Stephen Hawking quote earlier that he says the things that exist are here simply because of the laws of physics. But here's the problem with that. The laws of physics can explain to us why hydrogen atoms and oxygen atoms come together to form water. It might be able to explain to us how the, the electrons and protons and all that combine to form those individual atoms in the first place. But the laws of physics cannot tell us why any of that stuff exists in the first place rather than nothing existing. How did those raw materials get there in the first place? In every other part of life, when we see that something is there, we know that someone or something put it there. Why should the universe be any difference? So simply the fact that there is a world to observe points towards evidence that there is a God who made it. The complex design of the universe also points towards a God who's the designer. Going back to this iPad, it is a very well-designed and well-built piece of machinery. Right? We take one look at it and we know something this complex needs someone to design it. Now, if you compare an iPad to a human body, the human body in so many ways is way more complex than an iPad. Right? Like if I drop my iPad and I shatter the screen, the iPad cannot fix itself. But if, if you fall and scrape up your arm, the skin grows back on its own. It fixes itself. Right? Your, your human body is able to think for itself and come up with its own thoughts and communicate on its own. The human body can reproduce itself. Like how cool would it be if you could just take two iPads, put them in a drawer together overnight and come back and have a third iPad in the morning. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> like, oh, our kid needs an iPad for school. Boom, new one. It doesn't do that because that is really complex. And yet the human body can do that. It can reproduce itself in a way that the iPad never will be able to. And just as the complexity of the iPad points towards a designer who put it together, the complexity of the human body and of so much else in nature points to a designer who put it together. So the fact that the universe exists in the first place points to God, the complexity of creation points to a designer. And there are many more things. We don't have time to dig into them, but the fact that beauty exists and we have the ability to appreciate it points towards a divine artist. The presence of love and sacrifice in the world points towards a God who is loving and sacrificial. And there's so much more. When we learn to look for how God is at work in the world and we learn what to look for, evidence for God, it's everywhere. It's constantly pouring out. No matter where we are, no matter what we're experiencing, it's always there. God has hardwired evidence of his reality throughout the world we live in, so none of us has an excuse for not knowing that he exists. This, this revelation of himself, it, it's not 
it's not in a form where we can go into a science lab and do an experiment and prove scientifically that he exists, but he has shown himself in a way that anyone who cares to look can see that he is definitely there. So that's the first way we see this Psalm telling us that God reveals himself to us through nature. And that is an incredible and great gift, but it's also incredibly limited. There are so many limits to what we can know about God through nature, which is why God also reveals himself through scripture. You see, nature is great. It is amazing because it tells us that God exists, but you know what nature can't do? It can't tell us who that God is. It can't tell us what that God is like. It can't tell us how that God commands us to live. And if we were to live in a world where we know that there's a God who exists, but we know nothing about what that God is like, that is a terrifying world to live in. Did you, have you ever thought about that? Like a world where you know that God exists, but you don't know what he's like. You don't know how he wants you to live. That is a terrifying world to live in. Back in the day, there was this man named Ashurbanipal. He lived about 650 years before Jesus and he had a library and in his library, they found a prayer that shows what life is like for someone who knows there's a God, but doesn't know what that God is like. And, and this is what some of the prayer says. May the fury of my Lord's heart be quieted towards me. May the God who is not known be quieted towards me. May the God who has become angry with me be quieted toward me. The sin which I have done, indeed, I do not know. The Lord in the anger of his heart looked at me. When the goddess was angry with me, she made me become ill. Although I'm constantly looking for help, no one takes me by the hand. I'm troubled. I'm overwhelmed. I cannot see. Mankind, everyone that exists, what does he know? Whether he's committing sin or doing good, he doesn't even know. Did you catch the fear and anguish that comes from living in a world where you know there's a God, but you have absolutely no idea what, what that God is like? The person who wrote this prayer lives in constant fear. I don't know my God's laws. What if I accidentally broke one? The bad things that are happening in my life, is that just the gods being angry at me for breaking some rule I didn't even know existed? What do I have to do to make things right? I'm troubled. I'm overwhelmed. I can't see. That's what life is like in a world where you know there's a God, but you don't know what that God is like. And that's the life that all of us would be destined to live if God had revealed himself in nature only and not also in scripture. Which is why it's such incredibly good news that God has spoken in scripture as well, that he's given us the Bible. And David sees as he writes this Psalm that the Bible is an incredible gift. And it's an incredible gift for several reasons. First, he sees that the Bible is an incredible gift because it tells us who God is. If you look back in verses one through six of this Psalm, when it's talking about nature and how God shows himself in nature, did you notice the word God only appears once in those six verses? And the word for God that appears there, it's a very generic name for a divine being. It's, it's the word that could be used to refer to any God, whether that's Allah or Buddha or Krishna or whoever. That's, that's what we can know about God from nature. We can know that there is a God. We don't know this God's name. We don't know who this God is or what this God is like. But once we get to verse seven 
and he starts talking about God's revelation through the Bible. All of a sudden it changes. It, it doesn't refer to God generically as God anymore. It refers to him as Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D. Now, Lord in all caps is the covenant name of God. It's the name when God speaks to Moses at the burning bush and says, I want you to go to Egypt, set the people free from slavery. And Moses says, well, well God, who should I say sent me? He says, I am the Lord. That's his name, Yahweh. It points towards his character as a God who makes promises and is faithful to keep them. And this word, Lord, the, the personal name of the God of the Bible in verses seven through 14 shows up seven times. So we can see nature tells us there is a God, but the Bible tells us who this God is so that we can know him personally and have a relationship with him. And that's the first thing that makes the Bible a great gift. It lets us know who God is. But second, the Bible is a great gift because it tells us how this God expects us to live. You see in verses seven through 14, David uses lots of different words to refer to the Bible. He calls it God's law, God's testimony, God's precepts, God's commandments, that it teaches to fear God, that it gives God's judgments. And I know as people who, lived, who live in today's world, we don't tend to get excited about laws and commandments and rules. Is there anyone who's like, give me more rules in life, give me more laws? No, of course not. That seems ridiculous to us, right? But think back to that prayer we just looked at. A world where we don't know God's law is a scary world to live in. The Bible gives us God's law. It teaches us how to live. And therefore we don't have to live with that kind of fear. We can know what God expects of us. We can know how to live in a way that pleases him. We don't have to constantly look over our shoulder, waiting for some upset divinity to just come in and crush us because we broke the rules without knowing they were there. The Bible is an incredible gift because it teaches us how God commands us to live. And because the Bible teaches us who God is, because it teaches us how he commands us to live, we get the third blessing of the Bible, and that is that it brings life. Look at what David says from verse seven. He says that, that God's law is perfect and revives our souls. It gives us energy and life. Do you ever feel just tired and, and worn out from trying to figure out life on your own? David says, if that's the case, Learning God's law, learning how to live in the way that God commands will give you refreshment and restoration. He says that God's word makes simple people wise. You know, if you teens, this probably is especially applicable to you, but it can be applicable to adults too. If you find yourself constantly getting dragged into trouble because you're making dumb mistakes, or if you find yourself being gullible and letting people lead you into trouble over and over, he's saying God's commands can rescue you. They can give you a perspective on the right way to live so that when people try and trick you into doing the wrong thing, you can say, no, I know that's wrong. I don't need to do that. In verse eight, it says that God's rules bring us joy. They rejoice our hearts. Living in God's way is a way that leads to joy. In the second half of verse eight, it says that God's commandments enlighten our eyes. 
If you feel like you're just lost as you go through life, walking in darkness, don't know the right way to go. He's saying, look at what God says in the Bible. It will guide you. Not in the sense that all of a sudden you'll know the answer to every big question you have in life and all the things that you should be doing in terms of jobs and relationships and how to parent and everything perfectly forever. But, but think of it more like a, a fire burning in the night. It illuminates your next steps so you don't fall into a hole. It helps you know the next step so that you can keep walking faithfully to God and not be in complete darkness. You know, our world tells us over and over and over that true life comes from doing things your own way. Follow your heart, be true to yourself. But David loves God's word because he knows that true joy comes through obedience to God, not through doing things our own way. And so we see from the second half of this chapter that God's revelation of himself in nature is an amazing, wonderful, awesome gift, but God's revelation of himself in his word is a far greater gift. You know, we live in a world that's obsessed with caring for and protecting the environment, right? How many big companies out there don't have some sort of environmental sustainability initiative going on right now? Everyone cares about the environment and that's a good thing. It's part of God's creation. It's a good gift that he's entrusted us to care for. Like we should care for the environment, but if we care so much about the environment and God's word is so much greater of a treasure, how much more should we care about and treasure God's word? How much more should we take time to to study it and learn from it and apply what it says to our lives? How much more should we get to know the God who's given this revelation to us on a personal level? Not just abstractly, I know there's a God who's there, but I know this God. And if you're like, well, Eric, I would love to do that. I would love to read the Bible on my own and and learn what it says and apply it to my life, but I have no clue where to start or how to do that. Come find me after service and we'd love to work with you and, and help you learn how to do that. Because God's word is a treasure. According to David here, it's a treasure more valuable than gold and sweeter than honey. And yet, if we simply look in God's word for the law, it can also be a scary gift which is why it's such good news that God has also given us revelation of salvation. See, I've just been talking about how great this gift is of God's law and God's word. How can such a great gift be a scary gift? Well, it's scary because the more we study it, the more we understand what it says and how God commands us to live, the more we understand that we have not lived that way at all. In verses 12 through 13, David lists out four different types of wrong behavior that are possible. And each one of us has done each of these things many, many times in our lives. The first one is called, is what he calls an error. I think all of us would probably be fairly comfortable saying I've made errors in my life. An error is a mistake. It's not something that you necessarily did wrong on purpose, but it's still something you did wrong. Maybe because you just didn't know the right thing to do. Maybe you just weren't paying attention. But even though you weren't trying to break God's law, you still broke it. The second term he uses here is hidden faults. These are things that you've done or said wrong and didn't even realize that what you were doing is wrong, but it was. I recently said something that that hurt someone really badly. 
And I didn't even realize the pain that I had caused until a couple days later, this person came back and they were like, the thing that you said really, really hurt me. You know, I had said something that was really hurtful to this person, but if this person hadn't come to me and said something about it, I would have gone to my grave not thinking twice about it because I didn't even realize what I had done. That's these hidden faults that he's talking about. And we've all got things like this in our lives. Things where we did something wrong. We don't even realize what we did was wrong. We all do it. We tend to have blind spots in our judgment of ourselves that just overlook certain things that we do and don't even realize they're part of our lives. So there's errors, there's hidden faults. The third thing David mentions are what he calls presumptuous sins. These are things that we do in arrogance. They're things where, where we know what God's command says and we says, forget that, I just wanna do things my way. I know that the Bible says we shouldn't lie, but I know that if I tell a lie right here, it's gonna get myself ahead. And so I'm just gonna do it. Even though I know it's wrong, I'm gonna do it anyway. It's our declaration that we know how the world works best. God has no idea. I know how to live my life better than he does. And again, all of us have times in our lives where we've, we've had the opportunity to do something we know was wrong. And even though we know it's wrong, we still do it anyway. And the fourth term he uses is something called great transgression. This refers to things that are done in rebellion against God. It's like, if you set the target here, God, I'm just gonna aim that way because I really don't wanna do what you say. And I think this is the, the one that on one level, I have the hardest time being like, do I really do that? But then I think about my parenting. Any parent knows there are times where you say to your young child, I want you to do this. And even though they were like on the way to do that anyway, the fact that you just told them to do it makes them say, forget that, I'm going over here and doing this just because I don't want to do what you told me to do. Right? Is there any parent here whose kid has never done that? No, every kid does that, including you and me, right? We have this so hardwired into us that we have done it from the time that we were small children. And I think as much as I don't want to admit this, I don't think it's been completely wired out of me at this point, right? There are still times where I, where I look at what God says to do. and I'm like, I just don't want to do that because I just don't want to do what God says. And so there are four types of wrong behavior here. The errors, the hidden faults, the, the presumptuous sins, and the great transgressions. And we've all done this at some point in our lives, every single one of them. It's truly impossible for any of us to completely obey God's law all the time. We are all guilty. And the more we study this book, the more we learn what it says about how to live, the more convinced of our guilt we're gonna become. So this good, amazing, powerful, valuable, desirable gift that teaches us how to live and, and gives us life can actually become a source of condemnation against us. You know, thinking back to that prayer we looked at earlier, as horrible as it is to live in that kind of a world where we don't know what God expects, where we don't know how he feels about us, do you ever feel like maybe that would be a little bit better because then we can at least have hope that we've made it, hope that we're maybe doing enough? And the answer is, no, that wouldn't be better. Why not? Because God in his faithfulness, he doesn't just show us that he exists. He doesn't just tell us how to live, but he also reveals the way to salvation. That having a right standing before him, a right relationship with him, 
It's not something we can earn through our own effort and obedience. We've all failed. We've all fallen short, but it's still available to us. Did you see David's prayer in verse 12? He says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. It sounds here like there's an expectation on David's fault that that if God really searches his life and sees how David has lived, he's going to find that David hasn't done any of these things and he can declare David innocent. But here's the problem. You and I cannot have that confidence. We've all done all these things many times. And if you remember from our series on David a few months ago, he did plenty of it too. So how can we who have broken God's law repeatedly, who are genuinely guilty, hope to be declared innocent? And the answer is because of God's greatest revelation, one that we now know, but David could only look forward to in hope. And that's Jesus. Jesus was was God in human flesh. He was the ultimate perfect revelation in creation that God exists. And John chapter one tells us that Jesus was God's word made flesh. He's the perfect word of God spoken over humanity. And as God in human flesh, as God's word among us, Jesus kept God's law perfectly. He never did anything wrong, never broke God's law, even on accident or even without noticing it. And then he was killed. And in his death, he paid the price for sin. But because he was innocent while being punished as guilty, God can now look at you and me who are guilty and declare us innocent because Jesus traded places with us. God can look at you and me despite everything wrong that we've done and see people who are blameless and innocent. You know, David, he couldn't know the full story of what Jesus would do. But we see from the close of the Psalm that he had confidence that God will do something, that God is for him, not against him. And we see this in the last line when he says, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. When David thinks about God, the first thing that comes to his mind is not God, my accuser. It's not God, my judge. It's God, my rock. The place of safety and refuge that I can turn to when everything else in life is chaotic. The thing that comes to David's mind when he thinks about God is God, my redeemer the one who rescues me and saves me from danger. That's the gift of God's revelation. Not just that we can know God exists, not just that we can know who he is and how he wants us to live, but that we can know that he is good, that he is for us, that we can trust him because he's gonna take care of us. God loves us. He's faithful not just in the past 15 years that he's kept the bridge going, but throughout history, he has shown that he is faithful. He shows us through nature that he exists. He shows us through his word, what he's like and how to live so that we can have full abundant life. But he also sent Jesus to pay the price for our failures and rebellions. So despite all our failures, we can know him as our rock and our redeemer and our father who cares for us and loves us rather than our accuser and our judge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good, that you love us, that you show us who you are so that we can know you. Not just that we can know vaguely that a God exists, but we can know the name of this God. We can know the character of this God. We can have a relationship with this God. God, I pray this week that you would teach us to treasure your word and treasure the relationship with you that we have access to through it. Teach us to trust you, 
Teach us to love you. Teach us to live in ways that honor you and lead to full, abundant life. In Jesus' name, amen.